Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. But today I want to talk about dust writing and drop stones. Dust writing and dropped stones. You know, when I was about seven years old, we lived on the east side of Flint on Roosevelt Street. Um, how many have ever gone down 475? And you go by, I don't even know if it's there anymore. Does anyone know the uh, Mary's Dairy right there, the dairy place? I don't even know if it's still there. We lived right across from Mary's Dairy. And this was so long ago. This is how ancient I am. Uh, 475 wasn't there yet. It was literally, you know, houses and blocks that were there. And they had to buy all these houses out and tear them down. I remember I've told you this story, I think, in the past. But my dad was literally three houses in from the block where they stopped, and he was really hoping that they would need that block too because people were getting pretty good money for their homes. But we grew up on this street, and it was the east side of Flint. It was a little bit rough. I didn't know that. I just thought this is how life goes. You know, we, we get in fights every day, and, you know, we just punch each other out. It's really fun. And, but I had gotten into this fight. I was about seven years old. I had gotten into this fight with a neighborhood kid, and we were just going at it. And he was just like, I was already an angry kid to start with, had some issues in life. I'm finding that now, out now later in my life. But I was so irritated. And at one point, somehow, he, he got away from me. And he jumped on his bike, and he took off down, down the road to go for home, right? Well, as he's going, I'm just in this state of, have you ever just been so, like, just angry? You're seeing red. You can't really think straight. No, I know you're all spiritual, more spiritual than me. But I was in that moment at seven years old where I'm just like, oh, and I didn't know what to do. And I looked down and I saw a rock on the ground. And so I picked up the rock. And I'm telling you, with all the fervor I had, I launched that rock as hard as I could at that kid riding away on his bike. Now, I'm not saying we should do this. I'm telling you a story about something I did, okay? So I launched this rock as hard as I could, not even intending to hit. I'm just throwing it at him like, oh, right. And he's about maybe 20, 30 yards away. This rock, it goes up in the air. It comes straight down and hits him square in the top of the head. And all I remember seeing was the rock goes, hits him. He does this, falls off the bike. And I ran into my house as quick as I could. I think my dad was downstairs studying or something, you know, getting into scripture, seeking the Lord. And I come running, I'm like, hey, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm spending time with the Lord. Get out of here. No, he didn't say that. But, you know, I, I hit this kid with the rock. Just, I was so angry. And all I could think about was, what can I do? And I threw this rock at him. He ended up getting stitches. It was crazy. But let me say this. We made up. Everything was good. I remember going probably a month or two later. I got up enough courage. He invited me over to play at his house, and I walked in thinking, what's going to happen? And all the mom said was, hey, you guys going to get along? I said, yep. And I remember this. Isn't it crazy how we remember those little moments in life? I was literally, we were sitting on the front porch just chatting, eating powdered donut holes. I remember eating powder, and ever since I've been addicted to donuts. So praise the Lord. It was a good lesson learned. You know, but I, I started thinking about this idea uh, when I read a blog of, of this gentleman that I follow, and he asked this question. He says, why does it feel so good to throw stones? And I instantly went back to the moment, because in that moment, it felt so good. Like I just, it's like with everything within me, all the anger, I just, you know, we're supposed to cast our cares on the Lord. I understand that. But at seven, I didn't. I wanted to cast a rock up on his head, 
right? And so I did that. But why do we cast stones? And I think it's because if we're really honest, throwing stones makes us feel right. It makes us feel vindicated. It makes us, you know, feel important. I'm not talking about, I mean, we're old enough that we're not going to pick up rocks. We understand lawsuits today, right? We shouldn't throw rocks at people or through people's stuff. But whenever we have certain actions or words that are casting judgment or condemnation on someone, that's just like throwing a rock at them. And so, you know, th- there's this, this thing that we have within ourselves where, and I've seen this a lot, especially in the last few years, is where we really just, we want to be right. I mean, who doesn't want to be right? And so our, our sole purpose is to convince people with authority to be who we are. They have the same belief system we have, the same opinions, the same understanding of life. I mean, come on, wouldn't life be a lot better if everyone thought like me or you? That's what we think. But to be honest, it would be a pretty boring world, wouldn't it? And so there's this idea of throwing rocks, which then brings me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, a a place where we see there's people here who want to throw stones. And so I want to start here in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, in verse 1. Let's read this together, and then we'll start to break a few things down. Verse 1, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. Say the temple. Now, Jesus was pretty familiar with the temple. At this point, he's been at least 30 years on this planet. Um, He was seen as a rabbi. Uh, He would often take the scroll of Isaiah, Jeremiah, whatever they were speaking out of, and he would have his reading time. He loved the temple. He loved to spend time with people and discuss the scripture. And so here he is at the temple. It says, a, a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. That's just the heart of Jesus, isn't it? I want to teach you. I want to show you some things here from the Torah and look at some different ways of how to live life. Verse 3, as he was speaking, say, as he was speaking. We could literally say, in the middle of his teaching, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Say, uh-oh. No one said it. Say, uh-oh. Look what they did. They put her in front of the crowd. Now that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Let's bring someone in their sin right out to the middle in front of the crowd. No, I'm just kidding. That's not Jesus. But look what they do here. Verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? And I love that the writer gives us a little glimpse into what's going on here. Verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So they had a motive, didn't they? They had a motive to trap Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. Some of the things he would say would get under their skin. It's kind of like we talked earlier. Sometimes we like to throw rocks at people who don't believe the way we believe or think the way we think or have the same opinion that we have. But look what Jesus does. I love Jesus. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, let me say this. When, when I am talking to my kids and, and I ask them, you know, to do something or a question, I usually want a response. How many love it when your kid ignores you? <laughs> no. But in this moment, Jesus literally ignores what they say. He knows that they want to trap him. But what's he do? He stoops down. He wrote in the dust with his finger. 
They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. In other words, all right, guys, according to the law, we should stone this lady. Which, by the way, I don't know if you realize this, that according to the law, they should have brought the man and the woman. So they've already violated the law by not doing that, just so you know. But, but Jesus is keying in on something. He says, all right, guys, if we want to stone her, that's fine. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Brilliant. Isn't Jesus brilliant? I mean, he knows there's no one there. I mean, come on. If a rabbi says to you, hey, whoever's never committed a sin ever in their life, throw the first stone. I'm sure as heck not the first one to pick up a stone. I'm not the one to proclaim that I'm sinless. Come on. Verse 8, what's he do? Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Which is interesting to me. What is Jesus doing here? It says, when the accusers heard this, what they do? They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Say just Jesus and the woman. The accusers were gone, right? Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? What's her answer? No, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful story. I mean, here in the Gospel of John, there's this account of a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. You have a group of, and I use this word lightly, concerned religious leaders How many know they weren't concerned about upholding and being just according to the law? They bring this woman, by the way, not the man, which they should have. They bring him to Jesus, and then they cite the Torah. The the Torah is, they call it the books of Moses. It's it's called the law. It's it's the initial uh, books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is what they taught out of most of the times, other than prophets and the Psalms. And, And so they're citing this, saying, hey, according to the law... This woman has been caught in adultery, and we must stone her. And to clarify, to clarify, stoning in this context refers to hurling stones at someone until they die. Barbaric? Yes. It's the way they handled things back then. I can't imagine that now. You imagine that now? Line up. Everyone grab some stones. Let's start throwing them at people. But here's the thing. Their intention was to ensnare Jesus by inquiring if she should be executed in accordance with the law. Say, in accordance with the law. You know what I love about this? Jesus refuses to play their game. He refuses to entertain their proposition. What's he do instead? He stoops down and he begins to write in the dust on the ground with his finger. Finally, after they badger him and they keep asking the same question, he says, let any person who's without sin cast the first stone at her. Of course, they all begin to leave. But I love that he stoops down again and he begins to write on the ground with his finger in the dust. So we know eventually they all leave. It's just them remaining. And he says, listen, there's no accuser. Do you see an accuser? No. He goes, well, I don't accuse you either. I mean, it's a beautiful story, and that really marks the conclusion of the story. Yet when you read this, if you really are reading the story, it forces us to ask thought-provoking questions. I mean, if you read this story and you don't see some things in there that make you go, hmm, 
I don't think you're reading the story right. I mean, first of all, why was he writing in the ground? I mean, have you ever thought, like, what, what was Jesus doing? I mean, I've heard some things like, well, he was just passing time, trying to come up with an answer. Yeah, I don't know if i go with that. I think Jesus already, well, Jesus is the answer, right? So he wasn't looking for the answer. He is the answer. He knew what to say. And why did his words and even the actions prompt the religious leaders to retreat? What made them go from let's execute this woman to quietly, one by one, walking away? Another thing that stands out to me is why do the older men depart first? Why is it the oldest of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that depart first? And and as I really read into this, the question I have is why does John find it imperative to include these specific details? He could have wrote the story without saying Jesus stooped to the ground, wrote in the dust with his finger, right? I mean, he could have not said that they you know, all eventually left one by one, starting from the oldest to the youngest. I mean, these are key things. How many know this when, I believe scripture is inspired. I believe men were inspired by God to write these things. And whether you, whether you see it or believe it or not, um, scripture is written in, in a, a, an amazing way. I mean, there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of thought that went into these letters, into these stories. Um, I've used the example of the creation story that it's actually written in poetic form and it flows in sevens, which speaks to perfection. So when, when we read stuff, we have to know this isn't just some guy going, yeah, I'm just going to kind of recant a story and tell you. No, th- there's, how do I say this right? Um, there's an agenda. Now, I know when we, when we hear that, we think negatively. But what I'm saying is there's a reason, reason that they're writing what they're writing. There's a reason that they're including certain details. And so as an English reader here in the United States in 2023, almost 2024, we have to dig a little deeper and say, hmm, why does he include these details? So the first question that I was asking, even when I have been reading this for years now, is why was he writing on the ground? And so the first thing we need to do is we need to consider the activities of the Pharisees, of the teachers of the law, during the preceding eight days. Say eight days. See, they were attending a feast. The feast was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you're not familiar with Judaism, they have seven major feasts. They have four in the spring, and they have three in the fall. Now, the Festival of Tabernacles is the very last celebration, the very last feast that they have. And the thing about this feast is these these priests, these rabbis, these Pharisees, these religious teachers, they were at this feast, and if they were teachers of the law, what do you think they were doing during the feast? Teaching. That was their job, right? And what were they teaching about? This is really significant, okay? During this time, the festivals of tabernacle, this is a time where they would offer prayers and sacrifices and teachings all about the significance of one main thing, water. Why? Well, this was their festival in the fall leading into the winter. And what they really desired from God is for him to bless their crops by letting it rain so that in the spring they could have bountiful harvests. Does that make sense? And this isn't like us. I mean, 
If you need something like, oh, man, and Thanksgiving even, there's places open. If you didn't have something, some places were open. You could literally go and get groceries. How many know it's super easy to go to Walmart or Meijer and pick up what you need? Well, not 2,000-plus years ago. All right? And so they depended in a desert area on rain. Why? So their crops would be full. Why? So they'd have great harvests so they wouldn't starve. Because usually this is how it worked. The people who starved were the poorest. The rich got first, and it just kind of dwindled down. Just making sense. And so this festival, this festival was a big deal. But throughout this eight days, they continually talked about the spiritual and the physical significance of water. That's all they heard all week long. Eight days, water, water, water. What's really interesting is in, verse, in chapter 7, during the, the, the festival um, of tabernacles, it says that Jesus was talking to his brothers, and his brothers are like, hey, we're going to go celebrate. And he says to them, it's not yet my time. Now get this. He waits until the eighth day, the culmination of eight days of the significance of water. And he stands up with a loud voice, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come drink of me. Whew. I'm sorry, they just hit me. I mean, the theatrics alone. Jesus was very particular on how he spoke and what he said and when he did it. He waited until the eighth day of hearing about water, water, and rain, and water, and he stands up. What did he tell the Samaritan woman at the well? He says, I am the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst Again, these people were hearing about not just the physical significance of their crops and honoring God so he'll bless them, but this spiritual hunger that can only be satisfied, this, this, this cool drink that can only be satisfied by God. And Jesus says to them, if anyone drinks, if you're thirsty, come and drink of me. How powerful would it have been at that point? And so... They're expounding on the spiritual and physical significance of water for eight days straight. Now, which scriptural passages did they focus on? What scroll did they open when they were speaking? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> One of the passages that they would expound upon during the Festival of Tabernacles comes from the prophet Jeremiah. They read from the scroll of Jeremiah. The passage revolves around Dust. Now, let me ask you a question. Dust, what is dust the byproduct of? Absence of water. See, when you get rain and it hits dust, what do you get? You get mud. You get crops now that are getting nutrients and getting what they need. The absence of water, what's the byproduct? Dust. And look what it says here in Jeremiah 17, 13. This is so powerful. The prophet says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Listen to this next statement. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spirit of living water. Now let me ask you a question. These people, especially the religious leaders all week, have been reading, reading from Jeremiah on the significance of water and when Jesus bends down, how many know that someone went, wait a minute. The prophet said, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forgotten the Lord. 
Jesus wasn't just bored and got down and doodled in the dust. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was saying to these guys, you're missing the point. You've forsaken the way of the Lord. You've forgotten those who need help. You rejected others so that they can't worship with you. And I wonder, what was Jesus writing? Let me read that line again. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. What does Jesus do? He bends down and he writes in the dust. He literally seizes upon a verse that would be familiar to, to everyone there, including these religious leaders, and he manifests it through his actions without uttering a single word. That's brilliant to me. It's a subtle way of implying through his actions that they, the concerned religious leaders, are the one who have strayed. It's not the woman that you brought before me. Every time he just flips stuff around, doesn't he? Because they're like, we're going to get him here. Because they know Jesus. I mean, when Jesus would speak, I mean, at one point he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read about all these wonderful things that the Lord would do. But then he closed the scroll before he read any of the vengeful things that God would do. And they love the vengeful things that God would do to their enemies. And he rolls up the scroll. They got so mad at him because he said, this scripture has been fulfilled today right here in your hearing. They got so mad at him, they tried to push him off a cliff. They're like, you took away our vengeance, Jesus. So they know how Jesus is. They know that Jesus accepts anyone, including the people that they've rejected, that the temple system, the establishment has rejected. They reject those people, and they knew if we can catch Jesus. Here's what they probably thought. He's going to go, well, no, no, we're going to let this slide. But he didn't. Instead, he calls them out. From the last eight days of the scripture that they've been saying, he says, you are the ones who have strayed, not the woman. So what did Jesus write on the ground? None of us know. I was thinking the same thing. What if it was their names? These religious leaders weren't unknowns. And I wonder, did he write from oldest to the youngest? Because that's how they left. Again, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. I'm saying these are things to think about. Doesn't it make this story so much more rich than just a lady committed adultery, Jesus let her off the hook. Well, by the way, he didn't let her off the hook. He said, there's no one condemning them to condemning you, so I don't either. Go and sin no more. In other words, go and live a life of, of true authenticity out of the identity that I've made you in. You're not an adulterer. That's not who you are. Yes, that's your actions, but go and live according to who I've called you to be. So he's encouraging people. I talked about it this morning, right? There's something called discipline. There's something where, where God will say, hey, this isn't who you are, but it's never with shame. It's to say, hey, the way you've been living is not who you truly are. So let's get a little bit deeper into your true identity and let's begin to live out of who you truly are. Does that make sense? And so I think he wrote, wrote their names. And, you know, when, when you hear this story, there's, there's a lot of different perspectives. One perspective sees this as a valuable lesson on the importance of avoiding judgment. And I think we could say, yeah, that's, that's true. I can see that in there. You know, in essence, refrain from hurling stones at individuals who err because, guess what, everyone is prone to error. Come on. I'll tell you what. 
this has helped me in my life. It's easy to throw stones. And I'm not just talking about when I was seven years old and I was mad. It's easy to throw stones at others. And so what I do in those situations, and it's become easier and easier, is I think about the fact that that person may be in error. They may have said something wrong. They may have done something wrong to me, my family, friends, others. But I think about, have I ever been in that place? Have I ever ever spoke to someone like that? Have I ever uh, erred in the same way? What would I want? Would I want stones of condemnation and guilt thrown? Or would I want grace extended to me? And so, of course, to me, this story certainly is encouraging more grace and reducing condemnation. I think that's needed. I think that's necessary. I think the church has sometimes become known for what they hate and what they condemn than for our love. And when people hear that, they kind of go, yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's not just all about love. Well, God is love, so yes, it is. And even when we correct someone, it should be from the, the basis of love. When God corrects us, I mean, it's so funny. I could be in groups of people and say, you know, man, but God is love. And they're like, yeah, but he's judgment too. It's always but he is, but he is. Okay, God does judge or, or does discipline or does, you know, work on things in our life, but it's always from the place of love because God is love. You can't have one without the other. So his encouragement and his celebration of you and his forgiveness for you is all out of love, but so is discipline, right? I believe that the Apostle John here wants to emphasize that Jesus is challenging an entire entrenched power structure. Again, I, I, I believe that, that this story is encouraging more grace and saying let's reduce the condemnation. However, John includes the detail of Jesus bending down and writing in the dust, and I think we have to take it another level deeper. You think about the, these spiritual leaders at the time, they form part of a temple institution that governs the Jewish tribe. It's an institution that, that wields control over politics, over religion, over economics, over cultural life. And think about this, by Jesus confronting them, it becomes evident that this institution, this temple institution, has become corrupt during his time. And we see Jesus over and over calling it out. Remember when he went into the temple? And, you know, some people think he was whipping people. No, he was, he was running all the animals out. Why? Well, they had set up shop in the temple, and they were overcharging people who couldn't bring something from however many miles away. They were charging them two, three, four times what it should cost for that animal because, hey, you need a sacrifice. Well, we got one right here. You ever gone to 7-Eleven? You ever gone to a convenience store? And you're like, why does that cost so much? It's called convenience. The first 7-Eleven was in the temple in the time of Jesus. I need a turtle dove right over here. I need a bull right over here. How much? What are you charging? Where else are you going to get it, buddy? But Jesus saw that and he called it out. Jesus was constantly calling out institutions who had become corrupt. And think about this. 
what usually happens or transpires when individuals confront power structures? How do things unfold when people hold those in power accountable when those in power have veered off course? Well, often the person who confronts the powers that be, they pay with their life. And so to me, this isn't just a a heartwarming, sweet story urging us to exercise less judgment. It's deeper than that. I believe it encompasses political and social resistance against anything that deprives people of their honor and dignity. See, their purpose, their intention was to entrap Jesus. But in doing so, they brought public shame to an individual. And I don't even know if their intention was, we want to kill this lady for what she did. In fact, they did it wrong anyway. They were trying to trap Jesus, but in the process, they brought shame to a woman. And look what Jesus did. He flipped the tables. He was a table turner, wasn't he? He turned the tables. He goes, "Uh uh-uh, guys. Here's what I'm going to do. Remember those scriptures you've been reading through Jeremiah? I'm going to call you out right now. I'm going to call out your power structure that's throwing stones at everyone who doesn't believe and agree and have the same opinion as you. I'm going to call you out on corruption. It speaks of this rabbi who has bravery and determination to stand up and assert you are in the wrong. I believe the story recounts Jesus writing on the ground, but it also offers a glimpse of what lies ahead. This man, Jesus, will be killed. You know, sometimes we, we can so spiritualize a story that we miss out on what's going on here. See, the powers that be didn't like Jesus because they were disrupting their program. The, the empire of the day wanted to look to a man as the one who could save you, his name being Caesar. And Jesus was saying, no, there's only one God. There's only one Savior. It's me. The religious institutions wanted to continue raking in the temple tax and the money and the extortion while people are starving. They're eating large. They're living large. Look at the history. It's, it's absolutely sickening what was going on in the temple establishment. And Jesus says, nope, you are in the wrong. This isn't the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be. And let me say something. It's not just the Jews. I know the Jews have gotten bad rap for centuries, right? Seem to be picked on. But listen, I don't think the church today is doing such a good job at showing the kingdom way. Amen. I'm talking to myself. I have to challenge myself. We still have a world that's hurting that needs help spiritually, physically, soulfully. And so if each one of us are doing our part, listen, this isn't getting on anyone today. I'm speaking to myself. If we're not doing our part, how are we bringing heaven to earth? How are we calling out systems that have become corrupt? And I'm even talking about religious systems. And so we began with what is a pretty interesting story of Jesus stooping down and writing on the ground, followed by teachers walking away. Yet, upon further examination, we see that Jesus wasn't just extending grace to a woman who was caught in sin. 
Jesus was challenging a system that favored condemnation over grace. He's saying, you are in the wrong. This isn't how we do life. Will you stand with me? Today I want us to close with everyone just, let's, let's bow our head and just close our eyes for a moment. And I just want us to kind of get in that space where we forget about the person to the left or to the right of us. And I want us to think about, be honest with ourselves, think about our responses to others who have been caught in the very act of fill in the blank. What is our response to people in those situations? Whether it's something done to you or it's something you've seen on the news or something that a friend told you about, what is our initial response to people who are caught in the very act of? And there's, so, there's, a, there's a list a mile long that we could fill that blank in with, isn't there? Now think about how you respond in those situations. You know, are we people who are quick to throw stones of condemnation? Or do we stop and we think it through and we drop those stones in order to extend grace, to extend acceptance, to extend forgiveness? Because let's be honest, that's the way of Jesus. And I truly believe after five decades on this planet and spending time with Jesus and looking at the life of Jesus that this is his way. And it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to change our mind to see things differently. And I know for me, I want people to extend grace to me when I've been caught in the very act of, when I have not displayed what Christ looks like, when I've made a mistake or a misstep. I don't need the rocks. I need grace. Say this with me, Heavenly Father, Thank you for your grace. I accept it. I receive it. You love me. You truly care for me. I see that. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that when you see an issue in my life, you approach it with dignity and honor, not shame, not guilt, not condemnation. And so I'm open, Holy Spirit. Show me people that maybe I've thrown rocks at instead of extending grace. And we thank you, you've forgiven us. And we choose to go a different way. hearing this this morning, whether it's here, whether it's on the live stream, that you're helping us to 
connect more with our true selves, who you've made us to be, that we're living less and less out of that false identity, that rock-throwing identity into the gracious person that you've made us to be. I pray that we wouldn't put ourselves in a place where it's hard to hear your voice, it's hard to see the connection because we've forsaken you. You've not forsaken us, but those moments where we forsake you, we've, we forget about you. We forget about that time well spent and, and that true self that you made us to be. But again, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're always there to remind us of our righteousness, our right standing with you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Did you receive that this morning? For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.